Hey, you're listening to the Tales of Two Cities podcast. I'm Ashvini Malshi. And I'm Luis Hernandez. And we'll be your host today on this episode about spectrums. From a little to a lot. Left to right. High and low. Red to violet. Pretty much everything falls on some kind of spectrum. On this episode, we'll hear about how doctors have changed the way that we classify autism and Asperger's as part of the larger category, autism spectrum disorder, and why that matters to people affected by the disorder. Why we ever got rid of autistic disorder, I'll never know. I think that was a big mistake. The political spectrum in Oakland on Election Day looks a little different from the political spectrum across the country. We'll hear from voters in a city that reliably goes blue about whether their loyalties have changed over time. I definitely haven't gotten more uh, Republican, that's for sure. I mean, my dad went from Republican to Democrat. We'll learn about a school in Richmond that helps students who recently arrived in the United States with a wide spectrum of English-speaking abilities navigate the culture here. The students are going to do something I've never done with them before, which is figure out how to rescue Day of the Dead from Halloween. And finally, we talked to Eddie Kaufman, who teaches a course at the City College of San Francisco on male intimacy and relationships, helping people across spectrums of gender and sexuality learn how to find love, trust, and communication in their dating life. We as men have internalized that concept of, you know, we have to be masculine, Mm -hmm. right? Instead of recognizing that we as individuals can have both masculine and feminine traits. When international students arrive in our local public schools, they bring a spectrum of experience with the English language. Administrators at Richmond High School knew they wanted to do a better job for these English language learners. When graduation came, the students often couldn't get into four-year colleges because they either didn't speak English well enough or because they didn't take some required classes alongside their English classes. Reporters Edward Booth and Maria Sestito visited the Richmond High campus to learn about the school's new international academy. While speaking with Academy Director Rocio Reyes, they sat in on Rich Sieber's English class for ninth graders. So our International Academy is upstairs. Good morning. Good morning. This is my classroom, my ninth grade English classroom here at Richmond High School. Uh, in one corner I have a small library that is still being built, um, still trying to get the the right reading level books for my English learning students. Around the room I have some flags from around the world that I've collected as well as some banners I've made with uh, questions from the poet Pablo Neruda. We also have an ofrenda for Day of the Dead. Mr. Sieber says his curriculum is pretty much the same as any other ninth grade language arts class, but he says his students need extra help with English so that they can better understand the material. So the students are going to do something I've never done with them before, which is figure out how to rescue Day of the Dead from Halloween. It's a, it's a breakout, like a breakout room kind of game. There's a lot of frustration and discovery and what do we do. The goal is to save their calavera, the sugar skull set up at their Day of the Dead altar, from Jack a Halloween jack-o'-lantern. The calavera, along with some candy, has been locked in a box and the students need to find clues around the classroom to solve a crossword puzzle. The answers to the puzzle will give them the combination to unlock the box. They'll need to communicate in both Spanish and English to crack the code. So Andres just figured out one of the clues. Um, 
Now I want to see how he shares this with other students because other students are working on similar puzzles and they'll need to put these puzzles together to figure out the combination to one of the locks. That is 16-year-old Andres Buendia. How long have you been at Richmond High School? Uh, one month and a half. Where were you before? Uh, in Culiacán, in Mexico. Andres was already learning English at his school in Mexico, but he says he wanted to come to the U.S. to improve his skills. He only planned to stay for the year. Now he says he wants to stay until he graduates, maybe longer. I think that I will go to university. Um, I will travel around the world and make a lot of money. Andres knows he has it a little easier than most of his classmates. He didn't have to come here, he says. They did. I think that I'm not like a dreamer, uh, but my, my classmates, they have the necessity to, to be better and to be best opportunity in their life. So they came here and they are uh, trying to be better all, uh, all days, go to school, go to work, because they are, they are supporting their, fa- their families in like countries like Guatemala, Mexico, El Salvador. So um, they are doing a hard work because uh, school and then work and you don't have life. You don't have time to to go to the park, uh, to make some sports. Assistant Principal Rocio Reyes says it's not unusual for Richmond High's international students to have escaped violence in their home countries. Our students share that they're fleeing from violence, um, from gangs threatening their lives. A lot of them have witnessed murders in their countries. And when we ask about would they want to return, it's an absolute no. And, Reyes says, the staff works to make international students feel at home. We wanted to create a space where we said, you are wanted and you are welcomed and you do belong here. Although he's only been in Mr. Sieber's class for a short time, Andre says he feels like he is one of the leaders, someone who the other students look up to for help. Here, I, I love like, the teachers and uh, administration uh, give you like uh, opportunities and they give you attention and I like I like that. Back in the classroom, the students and Mr. Sieber count down from 10 as they use their last moment in class to unlock the box. Oh. oh, what? He did it upside down. But that's okay, because the point of the assignment was learning how to communicate and collaborate with each other. And, in case you're wondering, they still got the candy. For the Tales of Two Cities podcast, I'm Maria Sestito reporting with Edward Booth. In the 1980s, California had between 2,000 and 3,000 documented cases of autism in the entire state. Now, according to data from the California Department of Developmental Services, there are over 107,000 cases statewide of autism spectrum disorder, or ASD for short. Scientists and doctors are still unsure of what accounts for this exponential increase in prevalence of the disorder. Some people diagnosed with autism are highly articulate and capable, while others have severe difficulties with everything from communication to cognition. Others are on a spectrum in between. 
In order to get a diagnosis of ASD, you must have specific symptoms that interfere with your daily functioning, such as difficulty in social interaction and restrictive repetitive patterns of behavior. Reporter Brian Perlman went on a hike with one South Bay family to learn more about what life is like for those diagnosed with ASD, as well as for their families. This is Jill Escher, and she's on a hike with her two children in the Rancho San Antonio Open Space Preserve. It's a lush green space with miles of trails just west of Sunnyvale and Cupertino. See, you can always hear them. Both of Escher's children, Johnny, age 19, and Sophie, age 12, have been diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. We hardly understand it. We hardly understand the autisms which is what I really should call it. It's not, it's not one thing. There is no such thing as autism. When her children were each about two years old, they were diagnosed with autistic disorder. But that was under the old naming convention. In 2013, a new manual for psychiatrists came out called the DSM-5. Under the new set of criteria, autistic disorder, Asperger's disorder, and other similar disorders were grouped together under one inclusive umbrella, autism spectrum disorder. Well, autistic disorder, which was a much better term. That was... Why we ever got rid of autistic disorder, I'll never know. I think that was a big mistake um, because we need to be moving towards more segmentation rather than more lumping together of very diverse pathologies. Jill Escher, who was also the president of the Autism Society SF Bay Area, said the disorder affects her family in profound ways. While her children attend a special school in San Jose, she says they have no academic skills and can't read, write, or speak. No, 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 we're not going to car. And he knows, he knows. Johnny and Sophie can communicate with a few basic gestures and sometimes point when prompted. Johnny can shake his head or nod to show he wants something. And some of their other symptoms are evident on the hike. Sophie keeps suddenly sitting down. Escher has to constantly remind Johnny to stay with us. Um, it happens less now as an adult. It happened more when he was a kid. But now that he's 19, he tends not to wander very far away. And so as it turns out, the DSM-5 criteria, by bringing everybody together, has really created a reasonable picture of what is, clinical picture of what is this syndrome. Dr. Bennett Leventhal is medical director at a psychiatric research and clinical facility at UCSF. There are a large group of people with neurodevelopmental disorders who are denied services that they need. I mean, many, many, many. It's happened in California. They, they made laws that says that the government says to insurance companies and schools, you must provide these services for people with ASD. But, but the insurance companies and schools have said, well, but if you don't have that, then we're not going to give it to you. For some, especially those whose symptoms are more subtle, expanding the criteria for the disorder could potentially offer a better chance of getting better insurance coverage and medical help. Elia Catt is a 24-year-old Santa Monica College student from the Los Angeles area. I got diagnosed with um, ADHD when I was 14. I was diagnosed with PTSD when I was about 15-ish, I want to say. But not ASD. Still, Kat says she recognizes key characteristics in herself, such as sensitivity to sensory input. I know I am autistic, like no question, but I don't have the official diagnosis because it's expensive and hard to find someone that's not a pediatrician. Kat's challenges are quite different from those of Jill Escher's children. She's a high-functioning adult, but she says she still has trouble with things like keeping a job or being overwhelmed by sounds. She lives with her parents and sometimes wears earplugs because just being in the house can be too loud. 
She thinks getting a diagnosis of ASD would be helpful because then her insurance might cover services like occupational therapy or therapy to help with her sensory processing. And it sucks. Like, I'm kind of at a loss for what to do. I feel like I really need that validation that I am, even though, like, I know I am. There you go, buddy. Jill Escher says access to services is a problem for some families, but it's a special problem for parents with older children because they're getting older too. Because the parents are aging, the parents are older, so it's not only the issue about the paucity of services and funding, but you have parents that every year, right, become more decrepit, older, a little more incapacitated, and then they eventually die, right? So that's the real crisis that we're facing now, and we just don't have the answers. Escher says that her daughter will never leave home, and that she'll be her caregiver for life. She would eventually like to arrange an out-of-home placement for her son, but she doesn't yet know how that's going to work. For now, while her kids are in their teenage years, she enjoys doing things with them like hiking, ice skating, swimming, and traveling, and appreciating how affectionate they are as a family. Hey, Soph! Honey, we're just going to have to put on your shoes. So sorry. For the Tale of Two Cities podcast, I'm Brian Perlin. We knew that the 2018 midterm election was going to be an important one, and it got reporters Annie Berman and Carla Williams thinking, what does the political spectrum look like in a district that's famously blue? How do people who are used to voting for Democrats choose between a Democrat and another Democrat? To find answers, on Election Day, they headed out to a busy polling spot in North Oakland to ask voters about where they fall on the political spectrum. We're standing outside the polling station at the Telegraph Community Center in North Oakland. Inside, piles of I Voted stickers cover the tables. Voters are arriving to cast their ballot. Poll workers have been there since 6 a.m., waiting to check people in. Bonita Wright, this year's polling inspector, stopped to chat with us about this year's voter turnout. She is standing outside wearing a blue hoodie with her name tag and her own I Voted sticker. The voter turnout has been tremendous. This is my second time I've worked here, so I worked the primaries and it was moderate. But this morning we had people out here at 6.30, this morning, and it was a long line and it's been nonstop ever since. Libby Edelson is a woman with short blonde hair. She is intently reading her election material when we approach her. How long have you been a voter? 22 years. In that time, do you feel that you've like moved at all from Republican to Democrat or anywhere within that spectrum? Or? No, I've always been a Democrat. If anything, I've gotten more progressive as I've gotten older. What do you think affects you to be more progressive, as you say? The rising disparity in income and working people's ability to live well. Um, Injustice against people of color, trans people, the queer community. Um, I'm Jewish, so just a long history of being culturally trained to be sensitive. Michelle Ward hastily exits the polling center clutching her purse. She speaks very confidently about her voting choices, which she says are based on her values. I started voting the first time I could, age 18. What about the Democratic Party appealed to you at the time? Uh, Just all of my values uh, align with it. Um, I am more of someone who aligns with uh, social um, programs 
And so um, I found that it aligned with the Democratic Party more than the Republican Party. And I didn't really um, find alignment in like the Green Party or any of the alternative alternatives. So I went with the Democrats. John Camp, a voter in his 30s, is a former city planner and an environmental activist. I definitely haven't gotten more uh, Republican, that's for sure. I mean, my dad went from Republican to Democrat, but I've always stayed a Democrat, so. Do you think that um, there are times when some of your ideas align with Republican ideas more so than Democratic ideas? Almost never. I mean, especially in this day and age. I mean, the Republicans have gotten, they've gone like so over the top on everything. It's like, how could I agree with anything they say at this point? So. What about in a city where um, it's pretty blue, so maybe Cat Brooks, Libby Schaff is all Democrats, so how do you decide between those candidates? Uh, yeah, that was a huge challenge, actually. I didn't like being in that situation because I wanted it to be more cut and dried. I wanted it to be like, okay, yes, this person all the way. Um, because then I found myself kind of being like, well, I like this, but I don't like that, so I'm going to pick this, you know, and it, it felt kind of like I was that awful swing voter. So how do you decide in that situation, in like those two situations? I guess it was sort of like, what are my core values and what are the things that I really care about and do they align with those? A voter, Anna Fiddler, is holding her sticker in her hand instead of placing it on her clothing. I've never changed my position. I've always been very liberal. Why? It's a great question. Um, it's just always aligned with, with my beliefs. Um, everyone deserves a chance in life and equal equal opportunities, and no one needs to be stigmatized. I feel like the other party kind of rallies behind those ideals more so than than the Democratic Party. Are there times when your beliefs, when some of your beliefs, align with Republican ideas? Never. So, from what Oakland voters told us, they haven't moved too much on the political spectrum. They started out blue, and they stayed blue. If anything, some have gotten even more blue over time. That's probably not too surprising. According to the Alameda County Register of Voters, just over 55% of the county's voters are registered Democrat, and only 11% are Republican. So the rest are just people who don't have a party preference. Carla, did you know that Oakland was Republican for almost a century, from the 1860s to the 1950s, but Oakland voters started to swing left in the 1960s? I did. The last time one-third of Oakland voters supported a Republican presidential candidate was in 1972 with Richard Nixon. As we record this podcast, the registrar is still counting votes that will determine the outcomes of some Oakland races, but it's clear that the county voters went big for two prominent Democrats. Senator Barbara Lee was re-elected to Congress. She's been an Oakland representative since 1998. The voters also chose former San Francisco Mayor Gavin Newsom to be the new California governor. I'm Annie Berman. And I'm Carla Williams, reporting for the Tale of Two Cities podcast. Now we wanted to talk about dating along the spectrum of gender and sexuality, so we reached out to Eddie Kaufman, a licensed clinical social worker who teaches a college course on dating with a focus on the experience of men in the LGBTQ community. We wanted to ask him about how to look for a long-term relationship in a culture that focuses on hookups, how to find intimacy and trust, and his advice for flirting. So we're going to kick off. Um, so can you, you started a class on male intimacy and relationships. Can you speak about why... Why did you feel that necessary to start a class like that? It's kind of unique. <laughs> I would love to say that I was the first teacher of this course. I'm not. I'm the 
third. So uh, it's currently called Male Intimacy and Relationships so that people that are looking at that are that don't just identify as gay um, are interested. But it used to be called the Gay Male Relationship Class. And it's it's been a staple of the LGBT studies department at City College for, I think, going on three decades now. And why particular male masculinity? Why was that such a focus? Well, it was an opportunity. I mean, it was really a focus on, at the time, focusing on gay relationships and gay gay intimate relationships, right? So much of it was clandestine. So it was focused on, you know, um, environments like bars or dance clubs or, you know, more um, environments where men could only find each other for more physical contact, right? So more sexual um, intimacy. And so there wasn't a lot of focus on um, building intimacy and intimate relationships for men. I've never seen a class that's about healthy relationships growing up. And I think that, you know, healthy relationship skills and and the foundations of a healthy relationship are necessary at elementary school, at middle school, in high school, and in college. So what are some of the principles that students are walking away with when they take your class? We're talking about issues of um, we're talking about issues of active listening and communication skills. We're talking about how conflict in a relationship can actually be a constructive thing mm-hmm. instead of um, looking at it as a thing that tears a relationship apart. You know, conflict is going to happen within a relationship, but how you handle it and sort of the communication patterns and the agreements you make can actually help build the foundation of your relationship if you do it well. So we we talk about that. We talk about flirting and oh God, dating. <laughs> yeah, well, that's... Flirting. Yeah, right. Well, especially, I mean, think about, you know, in, in our culture now, everything's done online. I'm curious too, Eddie, because, you know... Um, I'm also a gay man, too. And for me, the moment I came out, I downloaded all the apps and um, it was just a way of figuring myself out. But I feel like a lot of times the gay community has a way of placing labels within themselves, too. So, like, are you mm-hmm. femme? Are you an otter? Are you a cub? Are you a bear? And it's like, I'm just me. You know, I'm just Luis. Right. And so right. <laughs> so how do you sort of um, I guess I feel like sometimes there's like this internal homophobia or is homophobia within a person's self also entering these relationships? Of course. And 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 homophobia. Homophobia is one of the things we talk about, both externalized and internalized, right? Externalized, you 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 recognize, you know, there's times where it doesn't feel safe or you, you don't feel comfortable, you know, in terms of physical safety, recognizing or expressing yourself in terms of same-sex attractions. You know, you think about growing up, what some of the uh, most difficult things that you can tell another kid you know, when you're when you're on the playground, you know, is fag or that's so gay and things like that. And so the message young people get is that that's not OK. Right. So you then over time as a young person, a young queer person who's growing up, you start to internalize those thoughts. It's, it's it seems like you're dealing with some pretty heavy issues. I mean, you're first so you're dealing with um, being gay and establishing meaningful relationships. But I think there's this underlying thing theme too, which is uh, masculinity. How is your class sort of taking on and confronting masculinity? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And I think with the online course, I've been able to take on that a little more explicitly. Um, But we definitely talk about, you know, images of masculinity and how that, you know, um, 
you know, just if we look at gender roles and gender socialization growing up, you know, how that influences us as as, you know, young adults and as adults, but then as, you know, as queer people, how that how those images of masculinity then get sort of embedded both in our presentation of ourselves and then who we're attracted to. One of the current, you know, sort of caricatures of gay men now is that we're all roided out, you know, muscle men, right, that are spend a lot of time at the gym, have yeah. six-pack abs. And mm-hmm. it's like I think a huge part of that um, that subculture is because we – we as men have internalized that concept of, you know, we have to be masculine, mm-hmm. right? Instead of recognizing that we as individuals can have both masculine and feminine traits. I'm thinking about the class itself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you mentioned flirting and you mentioned these sort of like skills that you need to develop. How do you how do you teach that? How do you teach to flirt better? How do you teach to you know seem more attractive to someone? Yes, please tell us. <laughs> yeah, I'm well, tr- I mean, I'm rushing to take notes right now. Yeah, well, I mean, there's some great YouTube videos out there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where people share what you know what works, um, and the truth is, is that I think a lot of us know what works, right? R- really seeing someone and really acknowledging them. That's that's attractive, right? And so, you know, smiling, joking, um, you know, making, you know, like subtle comments, those can be all very attractive things. And, you know, the truth is, is that many of us know how to do it and we find it difficult to do it with people we're attracted to. I will say as a woman and a woman of color. Mm -hmm. I am wary of flirting with strangers, so mm-hmm. I don't attract bad attention, you know, because yeah. that, that's a worry of mine, especially being single and mm-hmm. being alone, you know. Um, and I think for people, a lot of people of color, we feel very vulnerable in those situations. Right. Right. And, and of course, you know, I'm, I'm saying that with, you know, my class is a class for, for men. Mm-hmm. Right. So we're already dealing with a gender privilege. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and so, I, I mean, I definitely recognize those issues. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, I also I also think that flirting, if you break it down to it, is just recognizing and making someone feel good. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be sexual in nature. Yeah. Right. So it's, you know, telling someone, oh, my God, you know, I really like your hat. Right. You know. Um, you know, or, wow, I really like the way, you know, your outfit, you know, you know, accentuates your figure, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't have to be sexual specifically. Okay. It could be, oh, my God, you're, you know, you have amazing eyes, right? Or, you know, you were so funny when you said that, you know, is it can be a number of things that are just positive affirmations. Right. So I, I kind of lump those all into flirting. Yeah. Right, which is really different than, and this is something we talk about in the class: flirting versus cruising. Okay. Right. Yeah. Because oh, they're yeah because yeah, <laughs> that's something <laughs> particularly within the the male LGBT community. There's a lot of, you know, given our history and the environments where it was safe for us to be out, there's a lot of cruising behavior as well. Right. So cruising behavior is is really, I mean, it's. It's sexually focused. It's it's pretty explicit, 
right? And so a lot of the things you're talking about that you don't like are really more cruising comments, Mm -hmm. not flirting comments. Yeah. Right? Yeah, because you can – you get a feeling, right? You can tell what's good and what's bad. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and for people that are wanting – you know, that want the sexual activity and want that sexual connection – Cruising could be great, but yeah. too many times that, that in in general public, yeah. it's non-consensual. Right. So it's, yeah. you know, whereas flirting in general is, you know, it's a positive thing. Yeah, for sure. That's so. good to make that distinction. Yeah. I mean, especially for right now, like the moment that we're living in mm-hmm. with the Me Too movement. Absolutely. And so. So much, so many people coming forward and saying like I'm uncomfortable and like what society deems as flirting. Right. It makes me uncomfortable. So I like that distinction. That is just positive affirmations. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Eddie, for being here and talking to both of us. It was a pleasure. Yeah, it was awesome. I'm I'm ready to take all. I've I've been writing (laughs) notes furiously. (laughs) Excellent. Get the best relationship possible. (laughs) Yes, and you've you've taught me so much. Eddie Kaufman teaches male intimacy and relationships at City College of San Francisco. You can take his class online from anywhere. That's it for Spectrums. How have you moved along the Spectrums in your life? You can let us know in the comments of our SoundCloud account, which is at soundcloud.com slash richcon oaknorth. Or write us on Facebook by looking up our pages for Oakland North and Richmond Confidential. Or you can tweet us at North Oakland Now or RI Confidential. Our producer this week is Mickey Capper. Our music is by Kevin McLeod. You can hear our podcasts at oaklandnorth.net, richmondconfidential.org, and on our SoundCloud. To keep up to date with new episodes of the show, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Luis Hernandez. And I'm Ashvini Malshi. Thanks for listening to the Tales of Two Cities podcast. <laughs>